Larry noted there was a theme in our songs this morning. They revolve around the idea of Jesus being Savior. That's what his name means. And also the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. As each of the Gospels begin their story about the life and ministry of Jesus, each one of the four Gospels stresses a different part of the story. Mark Mark presents Jesus as God's perfect servant, and he says nothing about the birth of Jesus because really it's not the focus of his story. A servant's birth isn't something that's important. John presents Jesus as God himself. He doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus either. He starts with Jesus in eternity past, being the eternal word, existing equally with God as God and as the creator of all things. Luke actually tells us the most about the birth of Jesus because Luke is presenting Jesus as the perfect man come to save all kinds of men. And so because Luke stresses his humanity, Luke tells us a lot about Jesus' birth. As we journey through Matthew, we've already noted his purpose is to present Jesus as the Messiah King, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So listen as he tells the story of the birth of Jesus and note how he doesn't really say that much about the birth itself. Instead, he draws attention to sort of the surrounding events that give that birth meaning. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. That time of the year is almost upon us. Soon, We'll be paying a little bit of lip service to Thanksgiving. Then there'll be a Black Friday and a Cyber Monday. And every retail store will start piping in Christmas music in the background as you shop. There will be songs about the smell of chestnuts roasting on a fire. There are songs about a 
mythical fat guy and animals with glowing noses, a snowman coming to life, bells jingling, and hoping for a white Christmas. It is as if the whole world knows that they ought to sing, and yet they can't seem to find anything worth singing about except the menu or the weather. Now, if you ask what all the fuss is about, you'll get various answers, right? Christmas is about gifts. Christmas is about spending time with family. In fairness, I think most of the people would answer that Christmas is something about the birth of Jesus, but the world takes this event that it says is about Jesus' birth and proceeds to make it about everything except what the birth of Jesus is really about. Look at verse 21. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To which the world essentially says, Yuck! Save people from their sins? What kind of holiday is that? Let's make it about anything but that. Matthew opens his gospel by being locked in and hard focused on what the birth of Jesus is about. He starts with that genealogy we talked about last week to say, here's what you need to know about the family that Jesus is born into. But he even cuts that short, right? We noted that's a representative list. It's not a comprehensive list. And then starting at verse 18, he says, the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. And he gives the who, what, where, when, why, and how that you need to know. And we're not going to deal with all of those this morning. For for example, the where and when actually come in verse 1 of chapter 2 when he says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the where and the when. Verses 18 through 25 in chapter 1, our text Matthew gives us the vital information that we need to know about the how, the why, and the who of Jesus' birth. And in that process, what we'll see is Jesus is completely and perfectly human. He is completely and perfectly God, and he has come to save his people from their sins. So look at the the how of Jesus' birth. This is verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That genealogy Matthew gives up in verses 1 through 17 We noted last week, that's actually the genealogy of Joseph, not of Mary. Look again at verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Joseph is not the biological father, and Matthew knows that's going to require some explanation. So starting at verse 18, he dives into this explanation of the how of Jesus' birth. How is it that this child can be born as the promised son of David into that line that he's just described without being the biological child of Joseph? And it begins 
with the engagement or actually the betrothal of a couple who are far away from Bethlehem, which is the city of David, in a village of Nazareth, Nazareth, which is far up north in the region of Israel, in the the north in Galilee, David's descendants, (laughs) if you could see them up there, they were not looking very royal. Actually, there is the prophets of the Old Testament describe it as if David's family tree looks as if it has been cut down. There doesn't seem to be any more pride in being a descendant of David because they're not ruling on the throne anymore. Apparently, some of them had had to move to find some kind of livelihood to, to, to even find a way to live without being in the city of David. So Mary and Joseph, who are both far distant descendants of David, remember we talked about this le- last week, Mary, the descendant of David through his son Nathan, and Joseph, a descendant of David through his son Solomon, now live nowhere close to their ancestral home. Mary is, in verse 18, betrothed to Joseph. A betrothal is a sort of foreign idea in our cultural traditions. We have What we have is a couple gets engaged, and then after a period of time, they get married. Well, betrothal for first century Jews is a a step that's sort of in between those two. In the Jewish culture, this very likely was an arranged marriage. Mary is probably in her early to mid-teens, while Joseph would be older. We don't know how much older. So a marriage is arranged And at that point, they are engaged. They are promised to one another. And during that engagement, that agreement to be married could be broken. The marriage contract could be nullified without consequence to either of them or their families. But when the time comes closer, about one year before the actual wedding takes place, the couple is brought in to a formal ceremony And though they are not officially married yet, they are now betrothed. They are legally bound to one another. Breaking the betrothal requires a full-on divorce proceeding, which also required there to be cause, by the way. There were no no no-fault divorces uh, in, in Scripture. And the cause was would be something that would ultimately be made public. So when Matthew says in verse 18 that before they came together, he's describing that in that one-year betrothal period before the wedding, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. It is describing something startling to Joseph. He didn't know that this was a miraculous conception, that she was still a virgin, that she had not broken her betrothal promise, This was clearly a discovery that shocked Joseph. Matthew doesn't give us all the details. Luke actually gives us some of those. Luke tells us how an angel came and visited Mary and told her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would miraculously conceive a child, at which point Mary left Nazareth, went south to visit her cousin Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, 
and was there for several months before coming back home to Nazareth. And when Mary is seen back in Nazareth, she is either visibly pregnant or she has wisely found some way to disclose to Joseph that she is with child. And Joseph is naturally shocked. He's almost certainly feeling disappointed, betrayed, and yet he clearly has some affection and compassion for Mary because verse 19 says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He is a a just man, this is. He is a, a righteous man. The idea is he is a man who upheld the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law allowed that a woman who was unfaithful during that one year betrothal period could be brought before the judges and put to death. Joseph has no desire for that. But assuming, he assumes, understandably, that she has been unfaithful and is pregnant with another man's child, he also has no inclination to continue with the marriage. And that creates a conundrum for him. Divorce is not as public as execution would be, but it's still pretty public. You know, there had to be two witnesses for him to issue a divorce. And who is it that he could trust in order to keep this quiet and not bring unnecessary shame on Mary? He was, verse 19, the end of verse 19 says, minded to put her away secretly. That is, he had already determined to divorce her privately, but he needed to figure out how to do that. And so the beginning of verse 20 says he thought about these things. Meanwhile, Matthew makes sure that we understand what Joseph does not yet know. The end of verse 18. This is not some other man's child. Mary has not been unfaithful. She has, in fact, been faithful to the purposes of God. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit, he says. You and I know this right away in the story. Joseph doesn't find this out until the end of verse 20, right? When the angel comes and tells him that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. The gospel writers, all the New Testament writers, assert that Jesus' birth is miraculous. He was miraculously born of a virgin. He was born without an earthly father. This is important because every father in history has passed down their sinful nature to their children. But Jesus is perfect, holy, innocent, righteous, sinless. The virgin birth is important because Back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, after mankind had sinned, God had promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of their enemy, Satan. The virgin birth makes Jesus uniquely qualified for that great victory. The virgin birth is important because the prophet Isaiah was told that salvation would come to God's people when, quote, Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. That child 
born to Mary is the Son of God preexistent, which has been given for his people. We believe the Lord Jesus was born of a virgin because the writers of the Old Testament promised it and because the writers of the New Testament confirm it. And yet, they also in the process show us that even in his own lifetime, Jesus suffered the insults of those who would reject that truth. Some would reject it by saying, no, we don't believe that story that Mary and Joseph are telling. Isn't this really just the carpenter's son? Some would reject it by saying Jesus was a Samaritan. Essentially, he was of a mixed race in John 8, 48. They accuse him saying, aren't we right to say that you are a demon-possessed Samaritan? Some would be more subtle in their insults, like in John 8, verse 41, as they insult Jesus with, oh, we weren't born of fornication. We're not illegitimate children. Well, neither was Jesus. He is the loving child of his mother, Mary, and he is the faithful son of his heavenly father, and he was conceived miraculously to a virgin girl, a distant descendant of David and far away Nazareth. Matthew's going to have more to tell us about the virgin birth in a moment, but for now, this is the how of the birth of Jesus. It is miraculous. The why of the birth of Jesus is in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 While he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Let me just say that sometimes we miss that Joseph is given high praise in the Gospels. It's likely that Joseph died sometime between Jesus being age 12 at the temple, that's the last time we see Joseph, and Jesus being 30 as he begins his earthly ministry. We don't know the details of that. What we do know is when the ministry of Jesus starts, Jesus has brothers and sisters and none of them were born miraculously, which should tell us that Catholic notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary is nonsense. In fact, Matthew says as much down in verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I I like the description there as he was aroused from sleep. Have you ever jumped awake from a dream? I think Joseph probably did not wake up from this slowly yawning, you know, checking the alarm clock to see if if it's gone off. He went to bed wondering what he was going to do with this problem with Mary, and he woke up with complete clarity. Not clarity of, hey, I understand everything that happens, and I know how all this is going to work out, but clarity of God's command and his willingness to obey. And so 
ultimately, he went on with the wedding. He shows remarkable restraint in verse 25, not knowing Mary, not having sex with his own wife until after Jesus was born. Joseph is presented in a very positive light. He is called a just man in verse 19. He's willing to show compassion to Mary even when he thinks she has betrayed him. And here, he's one of those rare individuals in Scripture who receives a revelatory dream from God. In verse 20, the angel appears to him in a dream and listen what the angel says, addresses him as Joseph, you son of David. Joseph is going to be the adoptive father of this child that was not his own. Look, now y'all know our family. Let me assure you that when you find yourself writing down your child's first name with your last name as an adoptive parent, that comes with its own set of emotions, right? This is quite a dream. This is quite a calling that Joseph gets. First off, all the feelings that he has about Mary are going to get turned upside down, right? Don't be afraid to take Mary to your wife. No, no, just read over that. It might sound odd, like you can understand his hesitation, but what would he actually have to fear? Listen, take your mindset out of the 21st century and picture Joseph, a first century Jewish man, throwing a wedding feast and welcoming guests to see him and his clearly pregnant new wife. This is a cause for scandal in the eyes of the community, both at the wedding and as the child is born. We often miss Joseph's involvement in the birth of Jesus. It's a challenging road he's being given. We usually think of this from the perspective of Mary alone, and that's Luke presents Mary's experience. This is how Luke describes it in Luke chapter 1. The angel appears to her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This child is the very Son of God. But it's not like Joseph has the option of being Mary's husband and somehow keeping this whole thing at arm's length, right? That whole process and plan of God doesn't have anything to do with me. Not only will Joseph go forward with the full betrothal period and wedding with Mary, he's also going to be actively involved in raising this miraculous child. Matthew gives us Joseph's perspective where the angel tells him, verse 21, look at it, listen to this, she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus. Both Mary and Joseph 
got that same message. You will call his name Jesus. Y'all, this is not so. They don't get into an argument as they scroll through an ancient Hebrew baby name book. In that culture, by virtue of Joseph giving this name, which is actually how Matthew ends this account at the, the end of verse 25, it says, and he, that is Joseph, called his name Jesus. By virtue of naming this child, Joseph is officially involving himself, right? So much so that in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is 12, Mary comes and speaks to Jesus about your father and I. And she didn't mean God. She was talking about Joseph. Joseph is the adoptive father of Jesus. But the name they give to this child, they're both told to give to him, is not left up to their discretion. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus has meaning. In Hebrew, this name is Yeshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. It is the same as the name Joshua in the Old Testament. Yahweh is salvation. This was a suitable name for Joshua in the Old Testament because he was the chosen leader of God to bring God's people into the promised land. But here's what you need to know about the hearts and minds of Matthew's audience to whom he's writing in the first century. They would have loved the idea that his name would be Jesus, right? Yahweh is salvation. They would have loved the idea that he will save his people because that's what they had been waiting for. They were waiting for the Messiah that was promised in the prophets to show up. They were waiting for him to come and to bring salvation from their enemies. The Hebrews of the first century, they would have thought, great, Yahweh is salvation. The Messiah has come. Save your people from the Romans. You and I use this word save or salvation a little differently than the people of Matthew's day. The word simply means to rescue or to deliver from trouble or to save from affliction. Their hope was for a Messiah king who would come and conquer their enemies, who would give them great peace. But Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is that Messiah king. But the trouble and affliction that he's come to address is he's going to save his people from their sins. Just like Joshua, he is the chosen leader of God to bring his people into the eternal promised land and to accomplish that. He's going to conquer our greatest enemy, and that is not Rome. That is no person on earth. It is nobody out there in the world. Your greatest enemy is what is in your heart. And right up front in chapter 1, Matthew wants all his readers to know Jesus is the promised Messiah King. He is going to bring salvation. But do not start here and read the rest of this gospel expecting him to conform to your ideas of what the Savior should be. He's not come to save you from being dominated by Rome. He's come to save you from being alienated from God. 
This is the why of the birth of Jesus. He has come to save his people from their sins. Now let's look at the who of the birth of Jesus in verses 22 through 24. (coughs) All this was done so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Who is Jesus? Well, first off, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. If you have been reading Matthew, and I I hope you have, You already know he says this a lot, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Jesus is the salvation that God promised throughout the Old Testament, and what was promised there is fulfilled in him. Okay, turn to Isaiah 7. (laughs) We've got to dig into this for a minute. Because this becomes a point of contention for some folks. Isaiah chapter 7. Matthew is quoting here Isaiah 7 verse 14 and saying this is about Jesus. Isaiah 7 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The difficulty is reading Isaiah in context, which is important. Some people have argued this can't possibly be about Jesus the way Matthew says that it is. So let's just talk about this for a moment. Isaiah chapter 7, try to do this as a quick overview, is the story of three different kings. You see them listed up in verse 1. The main character is a man named Ahaz, king of Judah. But there are two other kings. There is King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah of Israel. And those two had formed a military coalition with the intention of coming down and invading Ahaz's land in Judah. And the Lord sends a prophet to reassure King Ahaz that God's going to protect him. Right In verse 7, the enemy's plans shall not stand or come to pass. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord tells Ahaz to ask for any sign from the Lord your God. Oddly enough, for the Jewish people who we've come to know are always asking for a sign, this is the one guy who refuses. He says in verse 12, I will not ask nor test the Lord, which sounds righteous, but it is really rebellious. Listen, verse 13 through 16. Then he said, the prophet says to Ahaz, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So the promise is that a virgin will have a child, and by the time that child's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, verse 16 says, the land you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, if you put this on a timeline, this is about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So, what kind of sign is this? King Ahaz, I want to give you reassurance. I want you to know that sometime in the next 700 years, those two kings that are your enemies are going to be dead. Gosh, thanks. Hardly a convincing sign for Ahaz, right? I know verse 14 gets sort of plucked out of context and used for lots of sermons in December, but it's a little more complicated than that. The easiest way to understand is to remember God can make a promise about two things at once. He can make a promise to Ahaz that Ahaz sees fulfilled, and it can extend far past Ahaz. So I'm fully convinced that in Ahaz's day, some virgin girl that was known there around the king's court got married, conceived a child the way every woman conceives a child, By the time that child was old enough to start knowing the difference between right and wrong, that coalition between King Rezin and King Pekah had been put down and God saved his people. But beyond that, God has a plan to save his people from their sins. And the promise that a virgin will conceive and have a son is ultimately fulfilled Over 700 years later, when Mary, our actual virgin, gives birth to Jesus. In fact, if you're still here in Isaiah chapter 7, there's even a pretty good clue in the text that this promised sign extends beyond King Ahaz. Ahaz was the descendant of David who was ruling on the throne at that time in Jerusalem. And when he refuses to ask for the sign that God commanded, Look at what God says in verse 13. He doesn't speak only to Ahaz. He addresses this sign as, this is a sign to the house of David, right? The whole frustrating family gets this as a sign. And then Matthew tells us that an angel comes to Joseph, the far distant descendant of David, addresses him in verse 20 as, Joseph, you son of David, And that, Matthew says, fulfills the promise that God spoke through the prophet. A good rule of thumb when you want to interpret the Old Testament is that when the inspired New Testament writer tells you what it means, he's right and you don't get to argue with him. Who is Jesus? He is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And Matthew is going to tell us that over and over in this gospel. But before we finish, let me ask you a second question about who Jesus is. Think about how Matthew has arranged this story and it has unfolded to this point. His name is Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation, right? Because he has come to save his people. Well, if Jesus has come to save his people, 
and Yahweh is salvation, then who is Jesus? He has to be Yahweh himself. Otherwise, Yahweh is not salvation. This person is, right? Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, is going to save his people. It means that he is God himself. Matthew explains that to us by saying in verse 23, reminding us that the promise the prophet Isaiah made is that this child would be known as Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's who Jesus is. That's what the virgin birth is all about. Jesus is born of Mary, so he is completely and perfectly human, but he's the son of God, so he's not like just any human, right? This confounding truth is reaffirmed so many times in the New Testament. Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. He is perfectly and completely both. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus and says that he is the one who was in the form of God, but came and took on flesh and suffered the death of the cross. He wrote to Timothy and said, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Apostle John introduces Jesus to us as the Word, as the Creator God, and he says the Word was made flesh and lived among us. He actually says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is himself God has made him known. Who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. If you know anything about the holy character of God, and the rotten character of humanity, you know how startling it is to say that God would be with us. How could God be with us? The Old Testament Psalms present God as in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He is high above. The the word that we would assign to that would be he is transcendent. God is up there. He's out there. He is distant and staring down at the world. But there is a promise that is sometimes seen that God is not only transcendent, he is eminent. He is close. He's he's right with us. You can almost hear that word eminent in the name Emmanuel, right? God with us. Jesus is God with us. I love the line from the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where it says, Robed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. In the person of Jesus, God himself is with us. Perfectly God, perfectly man. And he does all the things that only the God-man could do. As we move forward in the Gospels, Matthew is going to show us that he's, Jesus is healing the sick and he's raising the lame. He's resurrecting the dead. He's giving sight to the blind. He's rescuing the demon-possessed. He 
feeds the hungry, he ultimately goes to the cross and as God endures the wrath of God in our place to die for his people, to save us from our sins, rises from the grave, defeating death and giving eternal life to all who believe. Matthew tells us the story about the birth of Jesus the way he does because he knows what he's going to tell us for the rest of this story. He knows where this is going, and you need to know right from the start, Jesus is completely and perfectly human. He is completely and perfectly God, and he has come to save his people from their sins. That's what the virgin birth of Jesus is about.